It's a pleasure to be here with Adam Schwartz, who is a Senior Managing Director at First Manhattan Co. He is also the Chief Disruption Officer, as we'll discuss a bit more. Adam has very graciously agreed to speak at Latticework 2017, taking place on September 7th at the Yale Club of New York, which will be exploring the subject of intelligent investing in a changing world. Adam, thank you for speaking at the conference and thank you for being uh, here right now. Shai, it's a pleasure to see you again, and I'm always happy to have an uh, interesting conversation with someone who takes the time to do their research. I really appreciate that, and, and, uh, and you're a very thorough guy, so I, I enjoy speaking with you. It's amazing to be here at the office of First Manhattan. There's quite a bit of history, and it's hollow ground, I would suggest. Why don't you please uh, share with us your personal journey of how you got to uh, your current role? Sure. So I am coming up on my 17th year. I've been at First Manhattan for 16 years now. My Let's start from the beginning. I have a, an undergraduate degree from Brown University in economics and international relations and a business school degree from Columbia Business School. I would say early on, I had always bit, had a, a passion for investing and interest in investing, and that's kind of how I, I found my way here. Uh, as an undergrad at Brown, they had a, at the time, I graduated in 98. It wasn't really a professionally managed endowment in the way that endowments and pensions are run today. It was basically a loose board of professional people who were in the investment business that would look after investing. And I got to know a gentleman who was one of the board members at the time who turned out was a partner at First Manhattan. And I had met him because I had basically went to the faculty and said, I have an interest in investing. There really aren't too many investing classes at, at Brown could maybe there's some practical way that I could get to understand how you manage the endowment and what people do. So informally, I got to meet and got to know this partner and we stayed in contact. And this was my sophomore year at Brown. And uh, I had a number of different internships from other Brown alum that were loosely in business analysis. And over the course of time, you know, when I graduated, my first job was an investment banking analyst at Morgan Stanley in New York City. And I thought I got a great pre-business school education and it was a real practical knowledge of not only the, at the time it was the telecom corporate finance group, so I knew telecom companies very well. But I always stayed in touch with this guy thinking, I was really impressed with his knowledge of business. And more importantly, I thought he was just a good person. So in my life, I always tried to surround myself and stay in contact with people that I really admire for their values and just how they conduct themselves. After two years at Morgan Stanley, I got an opportunity from one of our clients to move to London and help with strategic development and M&A analysis. So I lived in London for two years, and I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I grew up in Brooklyn. And after two years of helping to build a company, I thought to myself, this is great, but the company had decided that they were actually looking at wanting to sell themselves. And that was a different job opportunity than, than helping to build it. So when I was looking for opportunities to come back, I reached out to our Charlie uh, Rosenthal, the, the partner that I had known from my days at Brown, and said, you know, I'd really like to hear about what you're doing at First Manhattan. Maybe there's an opportunity. And he said, you know, we really don't hire, so to speak, we don't put out a shingle, but come in and talk to my partners about what you're doing and what, what you know, and, you know, maybe something will come of it, but I can't promise anything. So I, I came back to New York just prior to September 11th, 2001. And I uh, came in and I thought I was going to have an informal discussion, kind of like the one we're having now, where I was going to just discuss my thoughts on investing and, you know, what I've been doing, et cetera, in a low-pressure environment. I arrived at a conference room that had five or six partners across from a, uh, me on a table 
and it had the feel of, again, it's a number of years there, but I, I remember leaving that room thinking, when I first saw it, this is kind of like a congressional grilling. There were five guys on one side of the table. There was a spot for me. And it was, okay, so please tell us everything that you've learned uh, and what you've done until this point in your life. And I left a little bit, you know, it was, from, from my perspective, the first time I had really been asked very deep probing questions, not just factual questions like, tell me about the company, tell me about the growth, tell me about the industry you know, but they were quite in-depth questions about me as an individual and what are my values. And, and it was really a, again, I was a young, I must have been 23. It was, it was a pretty deep a process that I thought, wow, I wasn't expecting that. And if they do that to everybody that goes through here, they really get a sense very quickly of what the person is, what makes them tick. So at the end of this, I wasn't going to call it interview, but it was felt like a grilling. I had a little bit of one-on-one time with Bob Gottesman, um, the CEO, and he left me, uh, you know, he said, you have an interesting background. He gave me a homework assignment. At the time, it was Kroger, uh, value or value trap. And he said, why don't you come back in a, a week or whatever you need and just two page or just basically write up what, what your thoughts are on this topic. And so I wrote up a research report, and I didn't really have a template. I just sort of imagined what, if I were, had to make an informed decision on whether to invest in this company or not, what are the things I would want to look at? So with very little guidance, I came back a week or so later and walked him through my analysis of Kroger, and I had come to the conclusion that it was a value trap. And he said, I, I tend to agree with you. We spoke a little bit about his work style and maybe how I could work with him. And uh, as a result of that, he said, you know, you see the world or the way you look at things are similar to the way that I, I look at things. Why don't you come and, and work with me and we'll see, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. And so that, that's, you know, more than 15 years ago. I've worked very closely with Bob and my other partners here. And initially, my responsibilities were research support. Gradually over time, I took on increased uh, responsibilities to supporting the firm's central research effort which included covering uh, media telecom companies to eventually becoming a portfolio manager and really uh, a partner with Bob Gottesman in managing portfolios. I have, uh, in more recent years, since becoming a partner of the firm, also focused on what I would call special projects, things that really move the needle and are significant, hence the chief disruption officer, which we can get into what that means to me. So the most special of our special projects that I'm very focused on is our, obviously, our FM First Hong Kong Fund, where First Manhattan, along with our local partner, Sean Huang, who's a former intern of mine, started a, a value-oriented fund in 2009, investing sort of First Manhattan style in the Hong Kong and China market. And we've, uh, we've adapted the First Manhattan research processes to make sense and to be effective in that market. So we can, we can get into that later in the conversation. But I would say about First Manhattan and my experience here, what has been a wonderful, an absolutely wonderful and lucky experience from my standpoint to have been given the opportunity to contribute here and to help our clients' portfolios grow is what I thought I was going to find here in terms of high quality people who had the highest integrity and who, who were really interested in creating value for their clients and for themselves, it totally exceeded my expectations to the point where I say to people, the first five years of my experience at First Manhattan, while they paid me a salary, I really should have paid the firm for the opportunity to be here because the amount of learning 
that I was, you know, took place and, and was part of was enormous. And if I'm really critical and honest, well, I hope that I contributed. I think the first five years was really me absorbing more than anything else. And I'm happy to expand on, on what I mean by that. Before we discuss First Beijing, please share with us a bit of the First Manhattan history. Absolutely. So the firm was started by Sandy Gottesman and several co-founders in 1964. And the primary business was investment advisory. And that's our business today. Sandy and his partners at the time basically were investors and had really honed the art of doing fundamental research for long-term capital appreciation. And I know that that's sort of an overplayed, and who doesn't, you know, who doesn't value invest today with long-term in mind. But at the time that they started this firm, it really wasn't the discipline that it's become, or certainly, you know, hasn't, it meant different things. Sandy and his colleagues were very, very focused as the firm is today on doing their own primary fundamental research, which meant really going out and visiting the companies at the company site, checking with competitors, looking at industry experts, and then having a number of companies come in and visit us over the years to the point where that's still very, very much part of the culture here. Anybody uh, who has a portfolio responsibility, stock buying responsibilities today, the majority of them today have come from a research background. And so we don't, we really have to see it ourselves and we have to kick the tires ourselves. We have to ask the questions. We don't like to get secondhand information. It's just, it's in the DNA here. The firm uh, grew organically. The clients, the original clients, back when Sandy started the firm, today we have second and third generation clients. And we we like to say we have a long-term perspective. We have long-term clients. And I think that our ability to please them and to do right by them long-term has afforded us the ability to, to take longer-term views, where other firms that have a shorter history uh, have had to be more short-term oriented and, and had to be more tactical than we have. As we sit here in mid-2017, how do you begin to unpack the phrase intelligent investing in a changing world? What does that mean to you? I think it means that in the world we live in today, a lot has changed, but some things don't change. And I think an organization like ours I can tell you how we've internalized this and how we've made it make sense to us. Clearly, the research process is fundamental and probably the most important thing we do to make a difference, to make an impact on creating value for our clients. But there's, in the world we live in today where there's so much information, you really have to decipher what's you know, white noise and what, what really is important. And the way we've taken this on is to say, we have to basically start at the very, very beginning. Do we like a business? And by like a business is the moat that we, when we look at a business, is it defensible? And I think that what the world has woken up to today is what they thought in terms of very wide moats and very strong business models of the past. And maybe this could be the recent past. Those moats have become challenged, challenged by technology, challenged by competition. And you have to be able to, in a much quicker way, discern either when you're about to invest or maybe after you've made the investment, you know, you have to constantly be questioning your assumptions going in and has the investment case changed. And so from our standpoint, I like to say to people on the outside about, you know, what is First Manhattan like? 
I don't know this, but I've never worked at an intelligence organization, but I know a lot of my colleagues and I have sort of thought about the fact that the way we go about getting information and developing theses is probably a little bit like how a highly functioning intelligence organization works, which means we start with no preconceived notions. We kind of have a history now, I would say a knowledge skill set from people that have been here for 40 and 50 years that they've sort of passed along, you know, I have seen this in this industry and look for these patterns and these economic statistics would, would bear this out long term. But, you know, realizing that we need up-to-the-date information to continually calibrate the quality of the business so that we can develop fresh opinions and that we're not sort of just relying on stale information, that's the heart of the work that myself and my colleagues do here. So in terms of intelligent investing, well, intelligent investing at the first is, A, do you understand what you're studying? And by understand, do you know what it looks like today and what it probabilistically will look like in the future? Are the people that are charged with running the business, your soon-to-be future partners, are they people who are going to treat you fairly in terms of uh, management and how they look at shareholders and minority partners? And the competition that exists today and the technology risk that could exist tomorrow, have you thought about that? Have you handicapped that appropriately? And that's not just you do that once and you're done. Once you've, uh, let's say, made the investment, you have to continually uh, check your assumptions and you have to you know, follow the results and see if things are playing out according to your plan. And if they're not, is it a short-term issue or is it something more fundamental that you maybe didn't see initially? So to me, Intelligent investing is using all of the data and all of the resources that exist in, with modern investing tools today, but also I think it's intelligently phrasing and, or thinking about the investment horizon. The kind of investing we do here is long-term, and long-term means different things to people, but we've had successful investments that have been 30, 40-plus-year investments, what I would call buy-and-hold and compounder strategy. Today, I think that it's a little bit harder to find those, but still long-term to us is three, five plus years, and that affords us a lot of flexibility to what I would call arbitrage time, where in the market today, many investors, their investors don't give them the ability to arbitrage the time. So when things react short-term positive or negative, they have to basically make a trade or in their investor base is scared, whereas we are allowed to basically see through perhaps the present uh, short-term issue to make a long-term gain. You touched upon your job title, Chief Disruption Officer, and you also hinted at First Beijing. Let's unpack what's, uh, what's sure. happening here. So the title resulted out of a trip. I had been pushing a couple of my uh, partners over the years to basically look at technology and technology platforms you know, more closely. So we traditionally have not had large technology holdings at First Manhattan. As a value investor, it's been hard to get comfortable around the valuations. And then there's always the garage risk, namely that somebody in a garage is tinkering on something and they take down your you know, huge business, basically the ultimate disruption. So I put together a little, um, what I've called internally a disruption tour. And we went to go see companies that generally wouldn't qualify as First Manhattan type investments. And at the end of the tour, we had met somebody at one of these companies who called himself a, a disruption officer. And, and my partner basically said, that's kind of the role you play at First Manhattan. And I, I took it sort of as a nom de guerre, as a, a, a big compliment, because I think to be a good investor today, you really do need to have a chief disruption officer from the standpoint that 
you need to constantly be looking at every one of your businesses and saying, how do I get disrupted? And you need to have a guy in the room who always says, what's the thing that's going to kill my business? And if you don't have that guy in the room, then I think you're disadvantaged from a research perspective. So what it means and what I do here is, yes, I'm also the guy that really likes technology platforms and I think has an appreciation for the power of those business models. But I'm also the guy in meetings that often tries to pose the question of, yeah, but can't your business be destroyed in the following way? Or explain to me how we don't get hurt or killed, you know, three and five years out because of this trend. And so I, I've taken that role to heart when sort of analyzing our businesses. But more fundamentally, when you look at First Manhattan, the firm, realizing that there's lots of positives that come from being a 50-plus-year-old firm, there are also, you know, you really do need to teach an old dog new tricks because while the world, some things don't change, there are many things to do and you kind of need to be agile. So one of the great qualities about our firm that I would say is that the people who have been successful here are people whom are very comfortable and I would describe as entrepreneurial. So self-starter types. And so realizing several years ago that the world was becoming more interconnected and that the U.S. wasn't the only quote-unquote game in town from an investor standpoint, I became very aware of the fact that high-quality companies come in all shapes and sizes and probably domiciles. So I was pushing us to at least be more open. We had done some international investing, but to be more open to finding high-quality companies that would pass the first Manhattan muster and maybe you're there in, God forbid, a place like Asia, which was completely foreign to us, foreign culture, foreign language, you know, foreign uh, shareholder structure, et cetera. So this was an idea that we were ruminating around here. And I was, you know, lucky, extremely lucky to have had an intern just basically materialize here. Um, his name is Sean Huang. And Sean, after many years as an intern, working closely with me, Bob Gottesman, uh, uh, Bernie Groveman, invited uh, Bob and myself to come to China. Now, our objective at the outset, I have to be very, very clear, was I wanted brain power. And, that, and I was lucky that Sean uh, found his way to us, which is a whole other story, which we could save for another time, because that, that's an interesting story. But after summer and then into a year of realizing that Sean had very deep understanding and appreciation of business because of his family's business background, I realized I had a really a great partner here in terms of research. He was very intellectually curious, and he was also intellectually off the charts in terms of you know, innate smarts. So Bob and I, at his, uh, when Sean graduated from school here, he went to NYU Stern undergrad, he uh, went back to China and began a business school program at uh, Beida Peking University, one of their top schools. And while Columbia Business School may churn out a couple hundred value investors a year, a value investing program in China really doesn't exist today, although that maybe seems to be changing because people are more familiar with it. So Sean invited Bob and I to China, and we went, and I put together, it was a two-week trip. The first week, we met with U.S. or Western companies um, who had big operations, companies that we were familiar with. And this from was our circa portfolio. 2009. This was uh, summer of 2009. And we met with uh, you know, very large Western companies that we knew that were leading, global leading companies. Um, Sean, as part of the trip, put together what he would call the best of China companies. 
And these were companies that he thought were, in his estimation, potential first Manhattan type investments. Although total different size and scale of operations, this was the best China had to offer. And they were either listed in the Hong Kong market, the China market, or were ADRs. So over the course of two weeks, uh, we, we, we did this trip and a number of very interesting things dropped out of you know uh, key conclusions, I, I would call them. One, the managers were seeing the same things. Actually, I should back up and say the meetings were, were totally different. Uh, while you're getting similar type information, you'd show up at, at a Western company and you'd be allotted an hour and the Western managers would look at their clock you know, or watch you know, 45 minutes into it, an hour, and say, listen, uh, not very nice to meet you, but I've got a lot to do and I've got to go. And we, we were very, very thankful for the hour that they spent with us. When we went to visit the Chinese companies, we noted that after an hour or so, the, the CEO or the chairman, often these were the founding people of these companies that own 60 or 70% of their own publicly traded companies, because that's the nuance and background of how Chinese companies um, operate said, you know, I, I don't really get to meet too many investors, and I certainly don't get to meet people who have done homework ahead of time and know not only our company uh, extremely well, but know the industry, and clearly you've spoken to competitors, and maybe you've spoken to some industry experts, and you've read several years of my annual letter. And these were all things that First Manhattan, that's like the, the manifesto. You don't go into a meeting unless you're prepared to a certain degree. And what we took as sort of just standard operating procedure these Chinese CEOs were absolutely flabbergasted and more than willing, and in many cases said, you know, why don't you stay for lunch? Why don't you stay for dinner? And these one-hour scheduled meetings turned out to be two-and-a-half-hour, sometimes three-hour meetings. So at the end of this two-week trip, we were sort of gathering our thoughts, Bob Gottesman and Sean and myself, and kind of the key thing that we were thinking about that really, you know, we said there's something going on here, is that nobody was doing the homework, the, the, the basic fundamental underground research for these Chinese companies, these public companies. And if you actually took that a little further, you said the people who are pricing these companies in the market are doing so from overseas. They're either doing so from Boston or from New York or London, or the closest thing would be maybe an expat who was sitting in Hong Kong or had a Chinese analyst who slept in Hong Kong. And that's a really important thing to think about because, you know, here we are, Sean is a mainlander. Sean was running around on the ground in China and able to actually use and see these services. It was, there was an aha moment there. And the aha moment led to eventually the, the foundation at the end of the year of our fund, the FM First Hong Kong Fund, which basically is mandate is to invest in publicly traded companies with their majority of their businesses in China. So those are companies that are either listed in Hong Kong, listed in New York as ADRs, or, or listed in the mainland. I have in front of me a quote from Jim Rogers in 1807. If you were smart, you'd move to London. In 1907, you should have moved to New York. Well, in 2007, you should have moved to Asia, which is when I moved to Asia. Again, Jim Rogers. How would you describe the way that First Manhattan is moving to Asia? Yeah, so that's a very interesting quote. And... I think the way we at First Manhattan have, quote unquote, internalized the globalization and the rise of Asia and specifically China is in the following way. Clearly, there are top high quality companies that are going to be, and there already are today. I mean, in the tech space, they've risen already, the Tencents and Alibabas. 
But First Manhattan, I guess, realized that we can't be, we don't want to exclude different parts of the world just because it's foreign. If we can do it in a First Manhattan way, and the, the emphasis is on a First Manhattan way. So what is a First Manhattan way that we would get comfortable to become local? A, I started by saying how important the research process was here to do it ourselves. We could never outsource research and we could never ever outsource research in a market that is so opaque uh, as China. And so Sean basically being on the ground and leading a research effort that has you know, more than six people spread from Shenzhen to Shanghai to Beijing and being able to do the fundamental research with analysts that he's trained in a similar fashion to the way that we trained him was very, very crucial. It was the absolute minimum standard we needed to get comfortable investing our capital. The other thing that is really, really important, so at the end of this trip that I just spoke about, what we saw was a way to make attractive capital returns for ourselves as investors. So the mindset wasn't, let's go build an asset management firm and, and really just garner huge amounts of assets because we need a China product. Nobody came to me and said, Adam, as a partner, I'd like to see a line item. You know, I'd like to see this amount of revenue from China. Uh, in very much the opposite way, uh, we happen to be in China, recognize that we have a partner who basically is local and can build out a local research capability that would be very, very difficult to replicate. And we think that value investing is under-applied or under-recognized in this market. So let's see if we could make, as investors ourselves, attractive returns. So the initial fund was started quite modestly with partner money of around $10 million. This was in December of 2009. And it was basically an experiment to basically see this value investing first Manhattan style uh, work in this marketplace. And after a number of years of, of success, success measured by significant outperformance of the Hang Seng Index, we thought that this, we, we have something here. And by, by have something here, we think that this is for a, a person who has a well-balanced portfolio, we think that there is an allocation to be made, some percentage uh, should be made in what was, you know, then the second largest economy, soon to be the, the, you know, probably the first largest economy in the world. Now, there are a number of differences about the market, about investing in companies in China that one has to get comfortable with and that we had to get comfortable with and that I had to get my partners comfortable with as the, the lead person, you know, building this team out. And I would say that it was a very deliberate and very slow process getting everybody fully on board and, and comfortable with this. You know, I'd say it started with a toe dip in 2009. And after we sort of proved it out to ourselves over many years, were we comfortable opening the fund to a very small subset of our clients at First Manhattan? And that happened, of course, in, um, in the summer of 2013, when the fund became something other than just an investment vehicle for the partners of First Manhattan and First Beijing. So listen, to this day, we've taken a very slow and steady approach. The fund has grown to approximately just over $200 million in assets, and still 50% of the capital is the partners of First Manhattan and First Beijing. And we think that that's really important and, and speaks to you know, slow and steady. I, you know, I've 
been in contact with many friends and, and observers along the way that I've spoken to about our approach in the fund. And they said, why has it taken you so long? And why haven't you, you know, really just scaled up and just raised a ton of money? And I, I have to remind them that this was never viewed uh, as a business externally. This was, we were going to make money as investors primary. And I think that that's still the primary motivation today is we see tremendous long-term value appreciation opportunities in a market that is completely inefficient. And, uh, you know, when I look back at when I speak to my senior statesmen uh, as uh, partners here and we sit around the lunch table as we do uh, on a daily basis, they speak affectionately of the good old days when Sandy and his partners started First Manhattan and how inefficient the market was and inefficient meaning if you wanted to get trade blocks of stock or you were interested in the company, you had to go basically travel around the country and secure and find out who had the blocks that you wanted and basically trade by appointment and convince them that you were worthy enough of this stock and to become a major shareholder. This, of course, was after you did all the homework on the company and decided it was a good company, had a strong moat, and the valuation was appropriate. A lot of what we're seeing today in China and what you know, I'm excited when Sean comes to speak at the conference with us that he'll speak to firsthand is very reminiscent of the early days of the partnership of First Manhattan. And that's frankly why I come jazzed up every day to, you know, to help build this out is because I think we, we are seeing, I can't tell you if it's the U.S. market in the 1940s, 50s, or 60s, but I think I'm basically investing in a market, the Chinese market, where it has characteristics of inefficiency and under-researched, certainly in, in where we're fishing, that will lead to the kind of returns that an investor in our market who stayed the course through a long period of time experienced uh, you know, back in the day. What did you learn in those first four years? So, again, any, I think, good research organization would call themselves a continuous learning organization. And I think that we really take that to heart here. So I, I would preface it by saying we're still learning. It's better, quote unquote, to learn on your own dime uh, before you learn on maybe a client's dime. And so that was why we took our time opening it to the outside. I think a couple of things. Uh, very fundamental to First Manhattan's ethos and DNA is the idea of being your own boss and having autonomy. So Sean and his team have full autonomy to decide what they spend their time on, what they invest in, who, who they meet, and we really are partners. And so at the outset, what we learned and what we had practiced was we weren't going to make it this first Manhattan plant the flag in China and make it all first Manhattan. We have the, all the answers to Western mindset and we're going to operate there. There was very much the opposite. It was, here's how it's worked for our 50-year history, Sean. You, you've been a, a large part of that. You've, you've learned what, what you've learned, but we really need to be Chinese in China. And if this is going to be successful, it has to be basically, we have to fish and we have to have a mindset that's Chinese. And what we do at the same point have to also we subscribe to certain universal values and ethics. So in a market that maybe has a reputation for being gray and being you know, a place where it doesn't have all the same standards, whether it be uh, insider information standards and other things, we have to apply, and this was self-imposed, the first Manhattan standard. And, and the standard was, we have to be able to basically very comfortably look at ourselves in the mirror and say, 
We are researching and doing all of the same work methods that are legal and comfortable and ethical that we would apply in New York in China. And I know that maybe that your competitors or other folks may say that's like investing with one hand behind your back, but that was not negotiable up front. That's just the first Manhattan way is knowing where the line is and not being anywhere near the line. And that was not something we were going to compromise on. And the reason we have a great partner in Sean and his partners are because they completely felt the same way. And so we can sleep at night knowing that we have a highly ethical first-class partner who, who I don't need to stay awake at night saying, oh, I hope that they're, they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing because that wouldn't work. Everybody at First uh, Manhattan and everybody at First Beijing is their own chief compliance officer, and they know exactly what they should be doing and how to do it. The other sort of key learning was the notion that we have here of certain businesses that we just wouldn't invest in because our Western mindset would say they're not good businesses. We have to be flexible and adaptable and, frankly, willing to recognize when the data suggests that maybe we should change our opinions. And I'll give you one example, which you know is very uh, topical because it's a conversation Sean and I had uh, yesterday with a partner over here. Traditionally speaking, I think the Western mindset would say that SOE, that's the acronym for state-owned enterprises, are companies that are to be avoided at all costs because you know who wants to, how could you ever be have a profitable investment in a, an enterprise that's basically owned and controlled by a communist entity, a party entity. And I would say that my bias before going to China was, I would say that was one of those things that I, was ingrained in me. And over you know, the course of now, it's uh, seven or eight years of, of investing there or, or visiting on a regular basis two or three times a year, Sean has appropriately opened my eyes and convinced me through the course of data and statistic, that that notion needs to be disavowed or, or basically uh, changed. And what we're finding, that's not to say that we now love all SOEs, but there is a big difference between good SOEs and bad SOEs. And we are finding opportunities in companies, just to name a space, in the renewable energy uh, industry in China. So these would be thought of as utilities that have wind generation assets. And because wind generation and hydro are so capital intensive, uh, and it's a regulated business selling power in China, you, these are all, uh, you know, as they are here, uh, regulated businesses in China, they're not only regulated industries, but they're controlled in large part by the local municipalities or at some point for the big ones by the federal government. So I, again, had to suspend for a second my negative bias toward I don't want to be a partner in a state-owned enterprise to be open to the idea that actually the companies in some ways are run by career-long operators who now have a mandate that where they have to incentivize their employees with stock ownership. And you're starting to see what I would call real you know, incentive programs that would be very familiar to the traditional Western investor, Western capitalist, where you're getting incentives based on ROE and based on total shareholder return that, for the high performers at least, are, are, are leading to what we think are very attractive returns. And because the West and other um, investors who have traditionally looked at these businesses as oh, old, stodgy, communist-run or controlled businesses are trading at a fraction of book value and maybe five or six times earnings. When you began exploring China in 2009, there must have been a category of known unknowns. 
and unknown unknowns, which you only later upon realized you didn't even know they were out. They were. What are some of the unknown unknowns that you've come to respect only after realizing these things were unknown at the time? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that I think in my experience at First Manhattan, investing over you know 16 or so years in a professional uh, manner, there are very few, if any, although maybe it's changing now, uh, points where there's a dramatic policy change. The government, which has regulated an industry for so long, all of a sudden, basically overnight, decides for whatever reason to change. Basically, black turns to white overnight. And Sean has opened, and investing in China, has opened us to the fact that that happens not infrequently, but more than you would like in China. So it, it happens you know, from time to time, and you have to position yourself in a way that you don't get hurt if there is a dramatic policy change. So the first thing you know, that I would say about that is under having a good understanding of what the government on a very high level, and then also on a local level, what their interests are. And so that largely dictates industries that we will look at, you know, where to go fishing. So on a very high level, it's not a mystery and you don't need to be a rocket scientist to realize that China's overarching interests today are they would like to reduce the amount of coal-generated energy they have, and that's basically an existential threat because they would like cleaner air for all their people. That's a real serious problem in big cities. They also would like better alternatives for transportation for their people. They also would like better healthcare and more accessible healthcare. And they'd also love to turn their high-saving, ever-increasing middle class into consumers. So I didn't just sort of pull that out of the air. Those are very clear policy initiatives driven by five and 10-year plans that are not only articulated on a regular basis, but you have government officials in various provinces that are incentivized to make those sort of big picture things become reality. So I don't want to say they make it easy for you, but, but they certainly give you this, the outlines of where the sketches are so that you could figure out which businesses and industries are going to more likely have tailwinds than headwinds when, you're, when you go fishing for investment opportunities. In the time we have left, I'd love to understand and explore why you agreed to speak at Latticework 2017. What is motivating you to share your wisdom? What do you hope is value-add that you receive in kind? Why are you doing this and what do you hope to receive? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have, I've told my wife this, which is, it's a little bit tug-in-cheek, but I, I take it seriously. Uh, I would like a small section of my tombstone to read. First, I'd like it to read, he was a great father, uh, terrific husband, a great brother and son. But somewhere on that, on that tombstone, I wanted to say, and played an integral part in bringing value investing to the Chinese market. And I really think it's, you know, my view of the world, and Sean has really opened me up to this, is that by and large, people are people, whether they're sitting in New York City or they're sitting in Beijing. And every time I come back from China, I have a, I'm electrified basically, because what I see is people like, you know, a younger version of, of the people that I uh, grew up going to school with and, and talk about investment ideas, really thirsting for 
wanting to make their country and their company and their lives, you know, better. And, and there's a thirst for knowledge. And, you know, investing in that market in China has traditionally meant to them, it's basically been akin to uh, going to a casino. It's been gambling. And over the, you know, seven or eight years that we've been doing this with Sean, I am heartened and I love speaking with Chinese value investors and frankly, like-minded people in, in different parts of the world. Because ultimately, as I, my view of the world is that we wake up in 15 or 20 years. And while I don't think we're going to look at China or the Chinese market as going to be exactly like something that somebody sitting in New York would recognize, I think it's going to be a lot more similar than it is today. And if I could play a firsthand role in helping to spread the knowledge and in terms of the knowledge, you know, on a very individual basis on the knowledge that First Manhattan and the institution that is First Manhattan and our partners have given and, and uh, tutored Sean and his partners with, if I could do that on a more broad-based uh, forum, that just makes me feel good. And so to answer your question directly, I view the opportunity to speak at Latticework is just to give some insight into a part of the world where people don't have very much uh, experience and where I have luckily, you know, it's been a real privilege, not only have some insight, but have some real strong opinions and knowledge accrued from being there and working with high quality people who I learn from every day. And so I think, you know, from my standpoint, while it'll be interesting, I hope from what, you know, your audience listens to what I have to say at Latticework, I think they're really, the value add is, and where it's really going to be interesting is hearing directly from Sean, who does an amazing job bridging East and West. And I think in the future, the future is really going to be uh, led by and, and owned by people who have an appropriate view of what, how people operate on the ground in China and have the appropriate framework and background to communicate that and translate that back into how uh, Western thinking and Western business practices and investors uh, relate to it. What type of feedback from the audience who hears a podcast could be uh, needle moving to you? Well, I hope if I could make a plug, if you are a young unknown intelligent researcher or value investor in China and you happen to read this, I would like you to reach out and touch either me or Sean because we're always looking to expand our brain uh, uh, capacity uh, with bringing on additional brains. And you know, I'll give you just a, a tidbit. Usually my trips to China include, they're usually 10 to 12 day trips. I do them two or three times a year. And the highlight for me, of course, is meeting with our investee companies and our potential investee companies but we run a, an amazing internship program, uh, Sean does, at a first Beijing. And he usually has eight to 10 interns who are top undergrads or graduates from China's schools. And there really isn't a formal value investing program, but Sean and his partners have basically made their own. And at the end of every trip, I usually do an intern dinner. And these are interns that probably in age from 18 to 23 or 24. And what I, gets me excited about the future is having a glimpse, though that really is the future, in my mind, of the next generation of value investors. And so I get jazzed hearing about what excites them and what they're seeing. And I think they get a little excited about hearing some more stories about, you know, what, what, what we've done and how we've, we've built the business and, you know, that is First Manhattan. And it's just a great exchange of ideas. And I hope that this uh, podcast is considered in the same vein as just uh, sharing the wealth of knowledge so that we, we all you know, do what we do uh, better with more energy. What's the best way for someone to knock on your door? Go to the First Manhattan website at firstmanhattan.com or you can 
uh, shoot me an email at aschwartz at firstmanhattan.com or just pick up the phone and call me. It's uh, 212-756-3388. And you'll find, you know, I think one of the things we pride ourselves on is the chief disruption officer gets that we have to be consumer friendly, is that we have a very, we're very user friendly uh, in all shapes and sizes here. Adam, again, we cherish the time you carved out for us. It's always great to learn from you. We look forward to seeing you again in September at the Yale Club. Latticework is latticework.com and very much appreciate your intellectual generosity. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's a pleasure, Shai. Hello, this is Shai speaking. With a blank sheet of paper, we set out to design a platform that truly has a reason to exist. We began with five building blocks. One, great people. Two, purposeful interactivity. Three, first-hand perspective. Four, intellectual honesty. And five, shared learning. We have laid the foundation for something beautiful. Latticework 2017 brings together individuals from around the globe to unpack the many angles of intelligent investing in a changing world. We are learning more about challenger brands, about China, and about disruptive innovation. We are case studying the past in an effort to better navigate the future. We are exploring what is changing and also what is not. Explore the Latticework podcast series via the link at latticework.com. And also, let's meet one another, not just you and I, the collective one another, 100 of us handpicked. Apply to participate in Latticework 2017 at latticework.com, taking place on September 7th in New York City for a full day of fresh insights and new friendships. I hope to see you there.